You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and uh, broadcasting from a Ionic 5 in uh, deepest and darkest Canberra. And joining me as usual, not in Canberra, but about to arrive, I think, pretty soon, David Leach from ITK Services. David, how are you? I'm well, and I trust all our listeners are well as we head into the end of the year and this incredible flurry of announcements that we're expecting uh, from just about everyone before we get to Christmas. Oh, look, you know, if, I've been doing this for about 10 years now, David, and it doesn't slow down before Christmas. It actually speeds up and it's quite exhausting. Uh, yes, well, that's right. But it, uh, it's fun for us and fun for our listeners. Uh, it's, it's great to be exhausted, isn't it? I, I've been that way for about 30 or 40 years. But let's talk about something that people, our listeners are actually interested in. Well, I'm sure they're interested in our state of health, David. But anyway, look, Glasgow is over um, look, progress of sorts, um, still light at the end of a very long tunnel, but nothing seems to have changed in Australia, at least as far as the federal government goes. David, what did you make of it? Uh, well, that, that's exactly right. And in, But, you know, as we discussed on last week's episode, I feel it's the federal government, uh, current government, that this year, that's getting wedged this time. Uh, Labor's been, as far as Labor versus the coalition goes, and I want to point out that we've still had Zali Stegall's uh, climate uh, bill being sitting there and rejected by the current government when it, a lot of people would support that uh, if it was to come up. Uh, but Labor's sort of been sitting there holding its fire, and much as we all want them to announce lots and lots of stuff, uh, at the meantime, we, we, if you just talk politics, and, and politics has got nothing to do with climate change, it's got nothing to do with electricity, it's got nothing to do with anything. It's about politics, and everything is seen entirely through a political lens, and that's why I don't want to talk about it too much. But at the, if you do look at it that way, it's just that the, the, the government's sort of having to go back on what it said before, and messages are yeah. you know, not, not yeah. credible. The messages are not good. No, they're not good. No. And we don't like talking about the politics of it all because it's very frustrating. But the trouble is, for the last eight years, politics has gotten in the way of policy. And um... Well, it hasn't, though, Giles. That's the point. It hasn't. Um, neither po- we haven't had politics. And we, it, despite the politics, despite the policy, in fact, Australia, it, the underlying message is that at least in electricity, which is the, the, the first place we start, we're making terrific progress. We have a, uh, a, a national electricity market, which now is about 22, 23% on a whole year basis of wind and solar, one of the highest in the world for a large grid or a respectable grid, and it's growing quite quickly. Uh, um, and uh, so we're at, we are actually making a lot of progress uh, despite that, and it's under, under very old policies. Well, no, that's true. But as Simon Corbell said in the podcast last week, we could actually be going much quicker. And there just seems to be a bit of a um, hiatus at the moment. Um, it's true that we're seeing record amounts of um, renewables. Just this week, we saw 60% uh, wind and solar on the main grid for the first time, a 62% share for total renewables. You go back a year ago, and it was sort of in the mid 50s. So that's advancing forward. We're seeing record low demand in South Australia. We're seeing negative demand in, in the grids um, there. Um, extraordinary progress on the technology front and the transition front, but there's still this sort of fear that we just don't have 
the investment, and you've been talking about the lack of network investment, and where are we going to see that? I don't know. I mean, you, you have been tuning into observations about the New South Wales Renewable Energy Roadmap. I don't know whether now's the time to talk about that or after our hearing from our guest. But, um... uh, we should talk about it after our guest. I just want to say before we move to our fantastic guest that we've got this week, uh, Ishu Kakuma from, from, from Bloomberg NEF in Japan, just before we get to Ishu, uh, is the two things, you know, are transmission, and we'll talk after this interview about transmission and what's going on in Queensland and New South Wales. And the other thing that's been holding back the rate of progress uh, is is what we're going to do about inertia and stuff. And that's where this year I think we've seen grid-forming inverters go from uh, a concept that uh, might be some years in the future to something that's been very aggressively pursued all over the market right now. But let's talk about that. After we hear from Ishu Kakuma, who, as I said, is the lead Japan uh, analyst for Bloomberg NEF. Uh, Japan, um, uh, Bloomberg NEF is just a wonderful resource, and it, we, we were lucky to get this interview. Ishu Kakuma, lead Japan market analyst for Bloomberg NEF. It's, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the uh, podcast today. Hi, uh, hi, David. Thank you for having me here. Um, it, it's interesting. Japan has quite an ambitious. Uh, climate uh, 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 change reduction program, I think aiming for about a 46% reduction from um, 2013 levels by yep. 2030. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you, do you feel confident that Japan will be able to achieve that? Yeah, uh, I think that's a good question. And I think uh, one thing I can definitely say is Japan has committed to the higher decarbonization target this year. Uh, such as net zero registration, updated NDC, and higher renewable energy target uh, in 2030 in electricity supply mix. So uh, with these targets, I think Japan is definitely serious for decarbonization. But I think uh, whether Japan can achieve this target or not is a probably different question. But I think Japan has been doing well to implement new policies and trying to I guess, uh, work on more for decarbonization. And yeah, we've seen a lot of movement around the, uh, within the government side. So I think that's a good step. But I think, uh, so I think in that sense, it's good, I guess, movement towards Japan decarbonization. But I think at the same time, there's some disconnect between uh, what the government wants to do and also what's the most like economic or feasible way of decarbonizing Japan. For example, I think Japan tends to bet on some future technologies such as CCS or CCUS, the carbon capture technology, plus uh, co-firing of ammonia, hydrogen at thermal power plants. And I think these are important, and especially these are, these will be like important pieces to complete Japan's uh, 2050 or 2030 decarbonization, decarbonization target picture. But I think uh, the government needs to kind of acknowledge that the most economic or the feasible way of decarbonizing, especially in the near term, is uh, renewable energy deployment. And to do so, I think Japanese government needs to kind of remove some of the regulatory hurdles, including some, some of the, uh, I guess, better management around the land use, since the land is one of the most, uh, I guess, biggest hurdles that developers have seen these days. Yes, that's uh, that's great. So I was going to get ask you exactly what you would do if you were uh, uh, Japan's prime minister or the senior <laughs> person at at, at, at Miti and and and, and yeah. 
you know, you really cared about achieving this target, what, what mm -hmm. steps would you actually take yourself? I think the first important step would be setting, uh, I guess, long-term target that gives some clarity around what the Japan is going to do. So I think one of the good examples that Japan did uh, last year was setting a high offshore wind target with kind of concrete number of like what Japanese government is going to do. So in the offshore wind target, uh, the government announced that the government or Japan is going to allocate uh, 10 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity by 2030 and 30 to 45 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity uh, by 2040. And what worked out well in this offshore wind target is that it gave like a long-term commit. It, I guess, yeah, it gave some confidence uh, to the private sector because they now know that Japanese government is fierce about offshore wind and they know they can, or the private sector can come in and make a commitment in Japan in the long term. So I think what Japan needs to do, or Japan, uh, I'd like to see for, within the Japanese government, it's a set, uh, I guess, a long-term target with some kind of the concrete plan so that the private sectors can, in, can come in. I think when we talk about offshore wind, because uh, it seems when, notwithstanding that the water is deep in Japan and it may have mm -hmm. to be floating offshore water, yeah. floating offshore wind, mm -hmm. there are issues that I have read about, like the grid capacity, the port capacity, the, yeah. uh, you know, four or five year environmental approval process mm -hmm. and collaborating with the fishery industry, which are all things that uh, are is partly the responsibility, I suppose, of the wind developers, but also things that the government could um, assist with. Uh, do you yeah. feel that confident that uh, Japan is heading in the right direction on those things? Yeah, so yeah, definitely right now in the current offshore wind, I guess, auction mechanism, developers are more responsible for a lot of things from like site selection to environmental perks assessment till I guess the grid capacity, securing the grid capacity. But at the same time, uh, we have seen some movement within the government that basically the Japan is trying to lead these, I guess, activities in a way that uh, the government will uh, manage those beforehand, before basically, yeah, before developers will work on those projects. So it's called the Japan Centralized Auction Scheme. And the government has announced, I think, uh, three sites as kind of potential sites that could be used for Japan Centralized Auction. And uh, still, the government is leading a lot of uh, discussion or how uh, those sites can be used for actual auction. But I think uh, the movement Around Japan centralized auction for the offshore wind has been, uh, I think, I think it's, it's a great step. Uh, yes, uh, sometimes people from uh, like me who don't understand Japan very well mm -hmm. think that the solar industry may only have limited prospects and onshore wind because there isn't enough land area uh, yeah. or land is expensive, uh, which is the same thing. Uh, is that how much of an issue do you think uh, that is? So I think, as you said, I think solar and onshore wind land constraint has been a huge problem, and I think this is part of the problem why Japan's uh, renewable energy is expensive because uh, there were like now Japan's uh, renewable energy market has reached a point where it 
getting very difficult to cut down that uh, cost for land development. But I think the potential for the option when is that they don't have to be constrained about that like land with restriction. And I think there's a potential about uh, option when, about, especially around the scaling up the project. And I think that um, in the offshore wind, the target that Japan has set for the price or feed-in tariff or cost, however you want to think about it, is around about 9 yen per kilowatt hour Mm -hmm. by 2030 or 2035. Uh, You know, for our Australian audience, that's about 110 Australian dollars uh, a megawatt hour. Uh, Do you think that this price uh, target is achievable? Yeah, I think that's a great question. But I think that target, the cost target of the Japanese government for the offshore wind is very ambitious. And there are a few reasons for that. I think the first reason is the wind speed in Japan is not as strong as, let's say, European countries where we see a lot of offshore wind projects at this moment. So I think uh, that means the capacity factor for Japanese project will be lower, which means the cost will be higher on levelized, uh, level, yeah, levelized basis. I think that's one problem. And I think the other thing is uh, how much Japan or Japanese project will source equipment domestically or from overseas. And according to some of the, I guess, research we have done, uh, we have found that uh, sourcing equipment domestically will cost more than uh, sourcing equipment from, I guess, developed market uh, overseas. So if Japan wants to balance out the cost as well as the kind of local content, uh, I guess, balance, I think that will be the tough part that Japanese government and also Japanese developer will struggle. Yes, I, I'm surprised about the wind speed because that some uh, fairly amateur data I looked at suggested there was uh, quite a lot of uh, resource available at wind speeds of nine uh, metres per second and even 10 metres per second, uh, which seems to me to be, you might get a capacity factor of 40 to 50% with modern technology. Mm. Yeah, I think that in terms of a resource potential, yes, but we haven't seen like a latest technology installed in Japan. And I think uh, Japan's project may be still using like smaller turbine compared to European projects, and that could be explained lower capacity factor. Uh, I think that uh, uh, well, you know, when Japan puts its mind to it and develops its own uh, local industry, and yeah. you know, if Japan was to decide that it could do it and wanted to do it, uh, then perhaps it would end up in a very competitive uh, cost that Japan has demonstrated that in lots of other industries in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you agree? Yeah, I think uh, definitely uh, in terms of the market expansion, the Japanese market has been, I guess, growing and supported by the Oshawaan target, which that I mentioned earlier. I think that a lot of companies are actually trying to develop domestic uh, supply chain, and it, which helped, uh, I guess, market ex- expansion for the future. So I think if uh, those companies can build uh, kind of good size of the supply chain in Japan, I think it will help uh, reduce the cost in Japan because I think sometimes if you have like a already developed supply chain for, let's say, OM, operation and maintenance uh, work, 
I think uh, during the downtime, or the, the project will be able to reduce the downtime because Japan cancels uh, those equipment needed for the maintenance locally, which would reduce the downtime. So yeah, that could be yeah right. one reason how Japan can reduce the cost. And just to uh, be clear, I think that even if it was, I don't know, 10 or 11 yen a kilowatt hour, that would still actually be quite competitive in the Japanese power market. Is, uh, am I correct to say that? I think, like, uh, what do you mean about the competitive? Well, I mean, compared with the cost of, uh, I don't know, coal or, or gas-fueled uh, electricity, you know, I think the... Uh, final price uh, in Japan is quite uh, expensive for electricity compared yeah. to some other countries. And so, you know, even even 10 yen is not a yeah. bad number. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But I think the problem is Japan's, I guess the current feed-in tariff is 36 yen per kilowatt hour. And the auction price cap at the first offshore wind auction will be 29 yen per kilowatt hour. So, I don't think Japan can reduce the cost like to like nine yen or ten yen per kilowatt hour level overnight. So it will still take some time, and I think that will be the biggest part, especially on how Japan will develop supply chain and reduce the project's cost at the same time. Hmm. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to say about the wind industry before I would move on to talking maybe about hydrogen and ammonia? Uh, yeah, maybe I can talk about some of the, I guess, like technology, yeah, yeah, market from the technology perspective. Yeah, so, go right ahead. Sorry. Yeah, so I think, uh, as you said, I think Japan has a lot of resource potential for floating because Japan ocean gets very deep right off the coast, but uh, we don't expect the floating will like become the big thing in Japan in the near term. Because I think what the Japanese government is trying to do is uh, trying to allocate some sites for bottom fixed bottom fixed technologies for now, and uh, I think to up to yeah make the floating market bigger. I think the Japanese government would need would need to allocate some sites specific for the floating, but we haven't seen that movement much. And I think Japanese government will start allocating some sites for floating once a lot of sites, uh, a lot of suitable sites for bottom fits will be taken in uh, future auctions. And at some point, they will run out the space suitable for the floating technologies. And that's the pro that would be the probably the time where when we started seeing the, a lot of uh, perhaps a, a location, site allocation for the floating. I see, uh, and but the, uh, if I was to ask for the ten gigawatts that uh, yeah. will be developed over the next ten years, yeah. you would expect most of that to be fixed offshore. Yeah, yeah. I believe that's, so. That's clear. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so if we just move on, the other I think big thing that Japan is perhaps one of the world leaders at promoting yeah. is uh, using hydrogen. And ammonia, maybe uh, yeah. in in the in the in the generation industry. What what do you think about that? I mean, I think the target is to have one percent of power generation in twenty thirty coming from uh, hydrogen and or ammonia. Yeah, that doesn't seem too hard. Mm. 
So I think, yeah, I think the government's ambition is too small, but I think that's because the government hasn't figured out what they need to do to kind of develop the market or develop the supply chain. And I think what Japan is lacking right now is like、uh, the government expectation of what they want to do for the supply chain, or I guess in general, like what they want to do for the hydrogen or let's say ammonia, and also what、uh, the government can do to support the uptake of the hydrogen. I think those two are missing in Japan. And I guess if I was Japan,、uh, just speaking as a financial analyst,、uh, I might worry that if I went too much for hydrogen and ammonia, that my power would cost even more in a relative sense to the rest of the world、uh, than it does today, because not many many countries in the world will be able to have a lot of renewable energy. Uh, you know, straight from wind and solar, and that、yes. is clearly going to be lower cost than than hydrogen or ammonia, however, whichever way you cut it.、Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's fair, but at the same time, we definitely we've seen a lot of interest and in,、uh, I guess clean energy sourcing from corporation side, and some. Companies are definitely struggle to, I guess, source clean energy because of the high cost. But at the same time,、uh, we've been hearing some of the interesting stories. For example, uh, in, uh, for the on-site PPA, the power purchase agreement using the rooftop solar, according to、uh, some of the discussion that I had with the market players,、uh, the tariff for on-site PPA can be actually、uh, lower than the what their what the corporations are currently paying. Depending on how long they can sign the contract, so I think, not、uh, yes, I think the having,、uh, I guess, clean energy can be more expensive, but at the same time,、uh, they can、uh, reduce the cost of what they're paying at the same time, and it just case on a case by case. Yes, no, I have no doubt that clean energy,、uh, at least in Australia, is is. Uh, lower cost. A system、mm. built on wind and solar will be lower cost than a system built on coal and gas. I, I have no doubt about that at all. But if I had to build a system on hydrogen and or ammonia,、yep. then then I would worry that it wouldn't be lower cost. That it would still be、mm. yep. higher cost. That would be、yep. my concern if I was、uh, thinking about it. Yeah, I think that's where the policy support is needed. For example.、Uh, As you said, the co-firing hydrogen and ammonia at the power plants would be、uh, more expensive than regular,、uh, I guess, power generation. Let's say like coal and gas. And to make it work, I think the ca- higher carbon prices needed in Japan. But carbon price in Japan is currently three、uh, dollars per metric ton of CO two, which is I think too low to introduce low carbon or zero carbon solutions. So I think yeah, this is where the policy support is definitely needed. And also, if Japan wants to kind of increase the domestic、uh, production of,、uh, let's say, hydrogen, I think Japan needs some mechanism incentivizing the production. And I think some good example can be like、uh, something like a feed-in tariff used for clean energy project. But as you know, there's no such mechanism in Japan, and 
I think yeah, these are something that I was kind of talking about uh, about the policy support earlier. Yes, and so if we just talk about policy and support, and I feel embarrassed as an Australian to be asking about this, uh, but um, uh, you know, Japan didn't sign the phase out coal uh, pledge, uh, you know, at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, and it's uh, you, sometimes you get a feeling that, like Australia, Japan is not really rushing into decarbonisation, no matter what the official target is. Yeah. Uh, what What is your sense about the underlying uh, reality of it? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and I think that's what we saw at the COP twenty six, where like Japan didn't sign the pledge about the phasing out or the shifting away from coal. And I think in general, Japan is a bit cautious of moving away from coal too quickly. So if you look at the, the 2030 electricity uh, or the 2030 generation mix target, which was approved by uh, the Japan's cabinet last month uh, in October, uh, in the target, the coal still accounts for one third of the, sorry, one fifth of the total uh, generation in 2030. So by just looking at this, uh, you can like understand that Japan is not trying to like kind of phase out coal like overnight. And I think energy security is one of the biggest reasoning behind uh, this move. So if you look at the generation target mix uh, in 2000, sorry, generation mix target in 2030, again, the share of each technology is actually like evenly split. And this is uh, because of the, some of the past devastating economic impact that Japan had seen before. For example, in the 2000, uh, sorry, in the 70s, when the oil shock hit Japan or the global market, uh, Japan was impacted quite a lot because at the time, Japan's, uh, Japan was relying on oil quite a lot. And again, in 2011, when the Fukushima nuclear power, power plant accident happened, uh, Japan, Japan's electricity market or Japan's electricity supply was hit quite hard because at the time, nuclear was uh, supplying about one side of the electricity. And I think the Japanese government was a bit traumatized by these experiences and trying to diversify uh, resources and energy supply uh, portfolio, if that makes sense. No, it does make a lot of sense. And uh, is that the reason perhaps why we see the share of gas going down in the new plan more than the share of coal? It's to have this balance in the portfolio. Yeah, I think one reason, but I think uh, I think in general, I think the role of gas it will be kind of support renewables, uh, in the especially in the long term. So I think that could be kind of reflected in the a revised target for 2030. And I think that for every country, energy security is a big thing, and because yeah. Japan has had to import uh, a lot of its energy other than when nuclear was a, was a big deal. Yeah. Uh, 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 things like offshore wind and solar and that seem to offer to me uh, yeah. from the outside a, a, yeah. a, a, a promise or a vision of more energy independence for, for Japan and not less. Yeah, I think I completely agree with your that, uh, argument. And also, uh, as you know, we have seen a lot of... Uh, I guess events around like a power crunch or the global energy crunch these days because of the increase in commodity prices. And uh, in Japan, uh, natural gas uh, usually is 
or the gas power plants usually set the, uh, the wholesale power prices. And we have seen the increase in wholesale power prices uh, because we have seen increase in the gas prices as well. And I think having more renewables in Japan's uh, power market will help uh, Japan to kind of mitigate some of the impact that we have seen during the current uh, the power crunch. Yes, it's we we forget now, but in Europe, uh, one of the reasons for for introducing the uh, wind and solar in the first place was to because the the cost of it uh, is is certain and fixed, and and once you have it, then you not uh, don't run the risk of these gas and coal yeah. and oil price increases. And the same must be true for every country. I think it's mm-hmm. not something you want to be exposed to more than you have to. Hmm? Yeah. Um. If I was to just move on a little bit then, the other side of things that I guess from an Australia's perspective is always interesting and from the world's perspective is just uh, and the, the, the auto industry, the car industry. And I know it's not yes. your your area of expertise necessarily, but it uh, I, the sort of feeling is growing uh, when I read the newspapers that Japan, mm-hmm. particularly Toyota, I suppose, is is, is uh, seems to be very... has very slow at uh, becoming enthusiastic about electric yeah. vehicles and really wants to would like to push hydrogen and stuff um, could you just talk a little bit about why that is and whether you think they'll be able to keep doing that you know or will they have to make a decision one one day or another yeah so I think you are right that uh, Japan's I guess market-wise EV penetration is very low and that's because of uh, limited EV models in the past, or I guess the huge market presence of the hybrid vehicles. But at the same time, I think Japanese automakers have been keen to, I guess, yeah, have been keen to the shift to the EVs uh, since early days. Like for example, Mitsubishi and Nissan uh, have been like one of the first EV manufacturers among all uh, incumbents globally. And also uh, we have seen Honda's move around uh, its shift to EVs by 2040. So I think these are good movement that we have seen among the automakers. And I think it is also notable to mention that uh, Panasonic's contribution around energy storage to Tesla. But I think one thing uh, that a lot of automakers, let's say, yeah, Toyota, as you said, struggle to uh, kind of think about how the auto market or the auto industry can shift their supply chains to EVs completely. So I think uh, Toyota and its suppliers are creating uh, quite a lot of employment in certain areas or certain for certain groups of people. And I think certain change, like a complete shift from complete shift to EV, would basically take out a lot of jobs for those people or those sectors. And since Toyota is, has a huge market presence in Japan and some areas, I think uh, the company cannot easily commit to such a, I guess, such a change. So I think what could work is maybe the government can help the transition from what they have to what they want to do in terms of electrification or, yeah, electrification of the vehicle sector, the transport sector, to smooth out the transition. This is very like uh, for the car workers in Japan. I think like the coal workers uh, in 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 Australia, and like we have often seen in industry 
uh, transitions. Mm. Uh, uh, and if I was to ask what opportunities, again, uh, this is a, 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 not a question I was thinking of asking before, but uh, when I look at Japan, what do you see as the opportunities uh, for the country in, in decarbonisation generally? You know, uh, you know, is it in battery or an inverter manufacturer electronics? Uh, what, what, what do you think Japan can, can do well? Are you asking about the auto sector or? The I'm just asking general, uh, general you know, general. Uh, auto sector or, or yep. just generally, you know, what mm -hmm. if you, yeah. Yeah, so I think. Uh, what Japan can do for decarbonization is basically prioritizing the power sector first because Japan's power sector emits the highest emission among the, uh, all the sectors. And the good thing is we know uh, what we can do to decarbonize the power sector, which is basically deploying more renewables. And in the sense, uh, offshore wind is definitely has the huge market potential because of some of the reasons I already mentioned. So I think offshore wind can be, and Japan has only installed 20 megawatts of the uh, installation also. So it's tiny, but we expect the market to grow to about four gigawatt by 2040 and about 10 gigawatt by 2035. So I think these, uh, the offshore wind market is a quite promising in our views. And the other thing I like to, or I'm looking forward to seeing Japan is the basically material materializing the high demand of clean energy from corporation side. So many companies are interested in sourcing clean energy in Japan. And if you look at the number of RE RE100 initiative, which is basically the group of companies which try to uh, use 100% clean electricity, and the number of RE100 initiative in Japan the number of companies in the initiative is 59, which is the second largest after the US. So, and we have seen like growing momentum in that movement. And uh, yeah, the demand for clean electricity among the private sector is like very high. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to see how that will be translated into like actual installation and clean up the power sector as well. One last question. I think Japan has quite a, a big steel industry. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, do you think that maybe, you know, if Japan was to get right on board with decarbonizing steel by introducing, I don't know, uh, hydrogen or, or, or electric arc with hydrogen, that, you know, that, that, that this, this can be an advantage for Japan? I mean, what I have, uh, I was on a conference with some people in Sweden mm -hmm. uh, that the Swedish Chamber of Commerce organised, and uh, the guy there was saying he had some carbon, um, some hydrogen, uh, zero carbon steel, and they, no one cared about the price. They just wanted to buy it anyway because mm. it was a good advertising and marketing potential. Yeah, so I think in the... I guess still making sector, especially the hard to abate sector. I think there are a few things uh, that sector can practice. I think the first thing will be increasing the efficiency of, let's say, the steel making process. And I think that will contribute to the reduction in uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And I think the other thing uh, they can do is switch to electric furnace when they uh, basically create the steel because yeah, electric furnace can be more efficient. And also uh, if Japan's power sector has uh, 
more renewable energy or zero carbon uh, sources, that means their steel making process will be cleaner. And I think in the long term, Japan can uh, think about the use of the hydrogen because hydrogen has a lot of the one of the biggest potentials in the hard to abate sectors. And I think to make it work, as I said before, I think the carbon higher carbon prices will be needed to, yeah, make uh, the hydrogen more economic in that use case. Is there, but I don't get any sense, just finishing off, uh, that there is any uh, push or move to have a higher carbon price in Japan. Yeah, so for now, we haven't seen any move. And what the government wants to do for now is to spur the, I guess, carbon pricing market using the voluntary carbon offset market or the certificate uh, among the private sectors. And I think the government is really... I guess, yeah, government is having a hard time to implement the higher carbon tax because higher carbon tax obviously means higher electricity tariff for some people. And uh, they've, been, they've been getting a lot of strong pushback from industry groups. So, yeah, I don't expect the carbon pricing or the higher carbon, pa- uh, carbon tax will be introduced like, immediately. No, uh, if I would be uh, a bit grumpy, uh, to use an Australian word, if I was paying much higher coal and gas prices and also having to pay a higher carbon <laughs> tax, it's not yeah. so much fun when you're trying to make a profit. Ishu Kakuma, mm-hmm. I thank you very much for talking to Energy Insiders. It's been, uh, been an absolute pleasure and I've learned a lot. Yeah, thank you so much. That was me talking to Ishu Kakuma. Giles, I'm wondering... Um, what, when we when we think about Japan, uh, you know, it's it's got a long way to go. It's our major trading partner, uh, but it's it's clear there is a, a certain degree of commitment. Even though Japan was one of the countries not to sign up to the end coal agreement uh, just before the G20. Look, that was actually quite disappointing. But um, look, it's just fascinating to hear from Japan because they it's going to be the decisions made in Japan um, and South Korea um, and in other Southeast Asian countries which are really going to decide the future of Australia's fossil fuel industry and also the progress in the green hydrogen industry. So we saw Japan, various Japanese companies have been signing deals with, I think, with Woodside in Tasmania. Um, with um, Marabini in South Australia, with the South Australian government, an offtake agreement. They've been doing deals in Queensland, um, talking about things in Western Australia. So it's those customers and that capital which is going to influence a lot of the sort of the braggawats we've heard about um, green hydrogen to date. That's that's right. And uh, if we get back to what we were talking about before that interview, the two uh, roadblocks to going faster, no matter what policy settings are in place, uh, are transmission uh, and inertia. I don't want to talk about inertia today, but I do want to talk a little bit about transmission uh, because every uh, Simon Corbell was saying it's a big issue. Everyone we talk to says it's a big issue. And it's an issue that even if we all agreed on what was to be done, even if there was a war on, it would still take time to build new transmission. So it's why it has to be front and centre of uh, people's minds frequently. And this week we had uh, the Queensland uh, transmission statement, PowerLink, uh, uh, talking about what they're doing. And uh, in my opinion, relatively modest amount of progress and, you know, with the usual um, uh, Queensland-centric focus, if it's not built in Queensland by Queenslanders, then it's probably no good and doesn't work. Uh, uh, and, you know, I heard uh, Minister De Brenny there uh, 
saying he's charged with developing a 10-year plan for how Queensland's going to get to 50% renewables by 2030. But, you know, guess what? It's 2022 next year and they've got a long way to go, don't you think, Giles? They have got a long way to go. And um, if the transmission plan that you're talking about with PowerLink is the same as what they talked about this week with the rollout of sort of the initial stages of the renewable energy zones, then certainly the scale of what they're proposing is nowhere near what they need to be um, getting to for that 50% renewables. And quite a contrast, really, when you think about it, uh, with the way that Matt Keane has gone about it. He's kind of sort of gone, okay, we need this at the at the end of it, and we're going to sort of pile in and do this as we go to make sure that we actually get to that target by 2030. It just seems to be sort of a, um, a, a upside-down approach that Queensland has adopted, but maybe I've got them wrong. Look, I was just on an Australian Institute of Energy uh, Young Energy Professionals uh, webinar where one of the presenters uh, was a representative, a very competent representative of the New South Wales uh, government talking about the New South Wales roadmap. And as I've said several times on this podcast, that they are really doing a very thorough and comprehensive job, not one without its questions because it's path-breaking. And for instance, I still don't know how you have an Altessa with a firm wind contract, but I'm going to be thinking about that. But what they've announced is that um, there's a whole lot of new entities. And what I heard today is that we're going to see this year the first report of the 20-year development pathway. That's due apparently before Christmas. And that's going to be followed up by a 10-year tender plan, which, if I heard correctly, is going to announce the New South Wales government's uh, target for how much of this 12 gigawatts of renewable energy they're going to procure every year. And that's, you know, going to obviously be over one gigawatt per year, but maybe not in a straight line. Uh, so, you know, this has been a year of getting ready and preparation in New South Wales. But I think as we move into 2022 and 2023, uh, we're going to see the sort of exciting news about which projects are getting up and when they're going to start. And that'll be something to look forward to. That will be something to look forward to. Um, David, anything else to cover as we sort of wrap up today's podcast? Um, um, I think we've, that's about it. We're just sort of still waiting for, well, I guess we're going to have to wait for Labor to pop their heads above the parapet um, in early December on their climate policy, their choice between politics over policy. Um, I expect to see a few more records broken in the coming, um, another couple of weeks left in spring um, in terms of renewable shares, and, and then we'll go into the, um, into the summer period. Yes, and the summer period will, of course, be the one where uh, it's very unpredictable as to what happens. There's a slight reduction in uh, renewable energy output because wind has passed its peak. Uh, and uh, we also get the very hot days where wind doesn't work so well, as we know. Uh, there's still not enough storage in the NEM, even now. Uh, it, we need more storage of short, long and uh, medium durations. Uh, so and so we look forward to that. But that's all, that's all in front of us, Giles. I think it just yeah. remains... Look, just on that, I just want to ask one more question, David, before we sort of sign off. Um, South Australia, levels of curtailment are quite high. This week, we actually saw a day when they actually had to curtail as much as they actually used. Now, it was a low-demand day, but still, surely this has got to be a signal for storage or demand shifts or, or, or something. I mean, that can't continue. Um, I mean, I, I guess we shouldn't be scared of curtailment, but surely that's a lot of free energy, if you like, going to waste. Yes, most optimised systems historically show that some curtailment is the lowest cost solution. But it, those, those uh, models never really think about the equity of it, like whose energy gets curtailed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's really one of the fights that you're having between the rooftop 
the guys don't even know they're in that fight and the utility solar and wind and thermal generation people. Uh, and this is where all these rules about minimum generation that's required for system strength, it's, uh, you know, once we take that requirement away by putting grid forming inverters in place, and that will, that will happen much quicker than people realise, then it's a, it's a, it, there's no real reason why the coal generators can't go away altogether if there's another, enough other sort of firming around. Look, it's a fantastic topic. It's something that can fill papers and papers and papers and, and, and lots more uh, podcasts, but I think we're done for the day, Giles, except for thanking our sponsors to whom we're, as usual, eternally grateful. Absolutely. And those sponsors, of course, are Pylon and Evergen. We'd like to thank them. Um, we'd like to thank everyone listening out there. And we'll be back again next week with another Hot Energy Insiders podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.